Thanks for listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. Our mission is to cultivate communities shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. You can learn more about our church by visiting cornerstonetulsa.org or by finding us on social media. This year, we're spending January through August working through the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7. We gather every Sunday morning at 9.30 and 11 o'clock, and we'd love for you to come and be part of our community. And if we can pray for you or if you have any questions, email us at hello at cornerstonetulsa.org. With that, let's hop into this week's teaching. Good morning. Please join me in standing as we read our teaching text for today. Matthew 5, 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Amen. Amen. Y'all can be seated. Good job, girls. Thank you. Adorable. One of those kids is half me. (laughs) Well, I'm so glad that you're here. It's, I'm really, it's so fun to get to be together, whether you come here every week or whether you're one of those what we call C&G Christians, you know, Christmas and Groundhog Day only. It's a really big thing. Uh, I was so excited about that joke. Only get to use it once a year. I'm glad that you're here. A couple of years ago, I was serving in another church. And the worship leader invited this guy to sing with the team, and this guy wasn't a Christian. It was a, like kind of a, a unique experience for him and for us, because he was like figuring out where he was in his journey with Jesus, and also leading the church in worship. And so I took this guy out to lunch, and we had a conversation. It's like, what is that like? You know, not yet being a Christian and also leading in Christian worship. And he said, you know, it's really fun. I like to be in front of people. It's like, okay, that's cool. He said, but every time we sing the name Jesus, it's like, man, there's... Like, there's something there. Like, my heart burns. There's something about that name. And what was so fun was just, like, getting to hear, hear him and in real time experience, like, the work of the Holy Spirit, getting something generated within him. And my hope is this year, as we're making our way through the Sermon on the Mount, that we wouldn't be, we would have fresh ears to hear the name and the ministry and the person and the teaching of Jesus. That like, you know, like one of the most dangerous things to all of us in our relationship with Jesus, especially if you've gone to church for a long time, is familiarity. Because with familiarity, there's an assumption that you already know everything. So if you've come to church most of your life, you've heard a sermon on basically every text, you can often fall into the trap of thinking that you have nothing new to learn. That's why we need freshness. We need a sense of re-familiarizing ourselves with the person of Jesus, with the scriptures. And that's what we're hoping to do this year as we work through the Sermon on the Mount, to hear it with fresh ears, to see Jesus with fresh eyes. And so this morning, I hope that you are coming in optimistic and coming in hopeful, coming in listening, confident that God has something for you, because I believe that he does. And so I'm happy, happy to hop into this text. Last week we jumped in, uh, we were on Blessed Are the Meek, which was the third beatitude. Four weeks ago we started the whole thing uh, looking at Matthew 5.1. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside and he sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. 
And Jesus has just kicked off this new ministry. He, he lives in relative obscurity after uh, we hear the, the magnificent story of his birth we celebrate at Christmas. He grows up in relative obscurity. One day he comes to his cousin John the Baptist at the Jordan River. There he's baptized to fulfill all righteousness. The Spirit descends on him like a dove, and then he's immediately sent out in the power of the Holy Spirit to be tempted in the wilderness where he passes the test, being tempted by the enemy. He comes back and he begins to preach his first sermon, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then he begins to enact that sermon by doing kingdom stuff. He starts casting out demons. He starts healing the sick, the lame, the blind, the, the blind. Like he's doing things that are blowing people's mind, evidence that in him the kingdom of the heavens has arrived. He's preaching it and he's showing it. He's, he's enacting this reality. And unsurprisingly, the crowds begin to follow him in mass. And then he sees the crowds. He seats himself on the mountain, taking the posture of a rabbi, and he begins uh, to teach them. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And heard rightly, these first two Beatitudes are not meant to be primarily an encouragement about the disposition that you should try to cultivate in yourself. It's primarily good news to victims, people who find themselves spiritually bankrupt, people who've been chewed up and spit out by life, people who have experienced tremendous grief and loss and find themselves looking for some kind of balm, some kind of healing. You don't go out and really try to be poor in spirit. That's not the, the primary purpose of Jesus' beatitude. Nor would you want to go out in a masochistic kind of way and try to mourn loss. So there's certainly application here, but the, the first hearing of Jesus in the beatitudes ought to be good news for people who find themselves in unfortunate situations. They're words of enabling blessing for people who can't help themselves. Last week, Susie continued the Sermon on the Mount a series and was looking at Blessed are the Meek, which in the past, when I've heard meek, I think weak, which is probably like many of you. And, uh, but she read, redefined meekness as reserved strength, someone who resists the urge to flex, to coerce, to strong hand, to try to manipulate their way into life looking the way they want it. But it's people who are throwing themselves on the mercy and the strength of God to make things right. And these first three Beatitudes, the poor in spirit, those who mourn, and the meek, we could all consider to be somewhat passive Beatitudes. But as we look at this fourth one that the girls just read for us, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, we start to get wheels in motion. There begins to be an invitation to action. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. I would guess that in this room, there are few of us who know what genuine hunger or thirst is like. I mean, really. Like, you know, you say, oh my gosh, I'm so starving. The preacher went on forever. But you're not really starving. Uh, like, you can be really thirsty, but few of us know what it's like to be destitute, to be truly thirsty, to be truly starving. When Emily and I lived in Honduras, we were missionaries there the first year after we got married. I remember at, toward the end of our time there, I threw a pizza party for these kids that I had been tutoring who lived in the community. And we wanted to buy a ton of pizza to just bless them. And, you know, teenage kids, they eat a lot. And uh, I remember I served the first plate to one of the students who we cared about deeply. And he said, could I excuse myself for a minute? And he, I said, sure, but what are you doing? He says, I'm taking this to mom. 
And when you live in a community of poverty, man, you're looking for your next meal constantly. And he saw, I have an opportunity where I can get something for myself, and I can also take care of mom. That gets us closer to the situation of people who are truly hungering and thirsting in a destitute way. Uh, When your water comes up on a water truck and they fill a huge pila for you to drink from, you know what it's like to truly experience hunger and thirst. And it really makes me sad to think that in the city of Tulsa there are children who truly hunger. Some of you who are teachers or administrators in, in schools or counselors know what it's like when you've got a kid who's kind of bouncing off the walls and you suspect that like the last time they probably ate was school yesterday for lunch. That's a really heartbreaking reality. Most of us know we go to the grocery store and the food magically appears and there's this whole process that we don't think about at all. We just get agitated if the eggs we like or the milk we like isn't there. We know we can go to another store. But for the majority of the world, it's, it's not like that. And even in our state, in Oklahoma, we've got a story of hungering and thirsting in our soil. You remember the story of the Dust Bowl in like Steinbeck's Grapes of Wrath? Uh, my grandfather lived in Oklahoma uh, during that time and knew what it was like when you know, the family has to pack up and move west because you're, you're starving. Uh, you don't have access to, to clean water. Lots of people in the world knows, know what this is like. And Jesus' original audience would have known what this is like. They lived in an agrarian society. He was up north with country folk who knew that if you don't work, you don't eat. And sometimes even when you do work, you don't eat because there are things beyond your control. There's, there's drought, there's famine, there's fire, there's flood. And so you're constantly looking for how you're going to provide for yourself. Jesus is appealing to this primal biological instinct that all people feel, but his original audience would have felt acutely, uh, that that need for food and water. And he says there's a special blessing on those who sense in themselves a similar need, not for food or for drink, but for righteousness. Righteousness. This word is dikaiosune. It's It's a word that has a lengthy linguistic history. It's a weighty word. And the word righteousness here uh, is, is uh, difficult to interpret. We see it in Matthew's context, and we could read it differently in Paul's context. When we read this word dikaiosune in Matthew, it's primarily talking about right conduct, right conduct. When we hear the word righteousness, we probably more likely associate it with a Pauline interpretation, which gets at a gift of God making us right in his sight, imputed righteousness, imparted righteousness. But we, we need not read Jesus through Paul's lens. We need to hear Jesus on his own. And in Matthew, righteousness is chiefly to be understood as a moral term or a social term referring to right conduct. So Matthew plus Paul, we have right conduct, right behavior. This is a social term toward others. And, and right standing with God. This is a holistic relational word. Being right with God and being right with others. The experience of justice in our divine human relationships. And these two ideas are inextricably linked in the Bible. When Jesus was asked, what is the most important commandment? He didn't name one, he named two. The first is, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, he links it, love your neighbor as yourself. In the biblical imagination, you cannot wholly love God while being unjust toward other people. You cannot wholly love God while you're actively hating somebody else. Read the book of 1 John. 
In the Old Testament, when Israel was proud of its rightness with God, they had the temple, they had the land, but they were behaving arrogantly or sinfully or unjustly toward other people, God came down in prophetic wrath. This is Isaiah 58. Great chapter. Shout it aloud. Do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their rebellion to the descendants of Jacob their sins. Day after day they seek me out. Well, that sounds like a good thing. They seem eager to know my ways. As if they were a nation that does what is right, it has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions, and they seem eager for God to come near them. All of this sounds pretty good so far. They're doing their religious stuff. Why have we fasted, they say, and you've not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? And yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please, and you exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Okay, God, you're getting into social justice here. You're not supposed to do that. Is this the kind of fast I've chosen, only a day for people to humble themselves? Is it only bowing one's head like a reed and for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Is, is not this the kind of fasting I've chosen to loose the chains of injustice, to untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you'll call, and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help, and he will say, here am I. They had the sacrificial system to impart a kind of righteousness so they, they could bear the presence of God mediated through the temple system. But they were not righteous with regard to right conduct when they're exploiting their workers and they're practicing injustice. And so God comes down. You can't have one without the other. Jesus does a similar thing in Matthew 25, taking this apocalyptic, prophetic tone. He says, When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, He will sit on His glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. There's a cake song about that. He'll put the sheep on His right and the goats on His left. And the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. The righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of my brothers and sisters, you did for me. He'll say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. Thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. A stranger and you didn't invite me in. I needed clothes and you didn't clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. They'll also answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and didn't help you? 
He'll reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment and the righteous to eternal life. You can't separate this kind of spiritual righteousness from social righteousness. As we are made right with God, we join God in making the world right. Now, some of you have been in churches that favored one definition of dikaiosune over the other. You've been in churches that were like, like they want to pack the place out and get people right with God. Get them to pray a sinner's prayer. Get them to come down to the altar. They had a zeal for it. But they were like horrible and didn't even think about how they behaved outside the walls of the church. Or they were mean to each other and there was backbiting and the board all hated each other and there were secrets all over the place. They got the spiritual stuff right, though I don't really think they got that right, while they're fighting with each other and not paying attention to their conduct. On the other hand, there are those churches who seem to be really socially active, active in social justice work, but their hearts are far from God. They're not walking in intimacy with Jesus. And in both situations, they're missing out on the fullness of what we understand when we say righteousness. We need both definitions. Now, I want you to take note as, as we think about this, this beatitude. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Hunger and thirst. This blessing is not primarily for those people who currently possess and practice the righteousness as we've described it. Did you notice that? It's, it's not primarily for the people who currently possess and practice it, but on those who lack it and desire it with the same urgency and intensity as somebody who's gone without food or drink and knows they can't survive without it much longer. So it's not the moral exemplar. It's not the person who's already doing all of this perfectly. It's the person who, who knows their need of obedience, who knows their sinfulness and their need of imputed righteousness. And it's people who, who have come to grips with, it, with themselves and they see themselves wanting. You know, uh, hopefully you've seen in the news these wildfires have been going on in Australia and just ravaging the country. And crazy destruction like that, uh, unusual things happen. And so many wildlife have been uh, destroyed. Ecosystems have been destroyed. And so there are pictures of like koalas coming out of their habitats and being so desperate for water that they're being, you know, bottle-fed by the hand of strangers. Even this one, which is just crazy to me, uh, snakes taking a... I didn't even know that that was a thing. It could even be possible. You can't even train a snake to do that. But desperation causes them to overcome the fear of humans because they just have to have something to drink or they're going to die. Have you ever had a time in your life where you felt like one of these animals? Where you felt so out of control that you were just desperate for a word from God and you'd do anything for it. Maybe it was in a moment of like coming to grips with yourself, like a ghost of Christmas present kind of thing, and you see the destruction that you're causing in the lives of people that you care about, and you play out that trajectory, and you see if something doesn't change, this is going to end really poorly. Maybe it's happened because someone in your life has gone through sickness, and you spent a lot of nights in a lonely uh, hospital room just crying out to God that anybody else would care or that something would change in their situation. Or maybe, maybe you or someone that you loved battled a, a habit or, or a hang-up of some kind that was wreaking havoc in your life, crying out to God to do something 
It's moments of hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Now, sometimes you can be uncomfortable with a problem. You can be restless with an issue. But it snowballs to a certain degree. It hits this place that John Tyson calls the crystallization of discontent where you become so angry, so agitated, so discontent with a given issue that you say, enough already. Something's got to change. I'm done with the status quo. And it's a powerful moment. If you can harness that moment toward right ends, it can be really transformative. It's the crystallization of discontent. I would guess that in evaluating our life with God, most of us would not say we're there. Just like... Just to put out a guess, most of us would not say we are so desperate for a word from God in this moment that we give anything just to hear him speak. Where are you? You could kind of put a spectrum to this, thinking about one's interaction with God. And at the far end, you have a person who's, who doesn't know of God. Uh, they're ignorant of God. They're ignorant of the things of God. There may be other people who are in opposition to the things of God. It's like, I understand what you're talking about, and I'm not on that team. People who are going to war against the heart of God. There are where many people live, which is just this place of indifference. It's like, yeah, God, Bible, religion, church, I don't really care one way or the other. Uh, this next one may be a matter of like amusement. So, yeah, I mean, when time puts out the cover of, with Jesus and the quest for the historical Jesus, like, sure, I'll read that for like two and a half minutes if I can read it for free online. It's like it's kind of on a whim. There may be a little bit of interest, but it's fleeting. There may be others who are not against it, not indifferent to it, but actually kind of open. They're not going to go seeking it out, but hey, if God shows up, if there's like a word through the fortune cookie or whatever, like, yeah, if there's a God, I'll, I'll, like, I'll answer that call. It's a posture of openness. As we move further to the right, then action begins to play a part. People who are not only open, but begin seeking things out. They have a sense of curiosity. I'm on a, a divine investigation. I want to, the, I want to get to the bottom of this. There may be others whose curiosity is escalated to a point of genuine interest. I want to understand. I want to know more. Could you teach me about this? And it just ramps up in intensity from an interest to being a heart's desire. Like I'm, I'm motivated with my life to seek after this thing because there's a question I need an answer to. There's an itch that I need scratching. And that desire as it grows could get to a place of true passion and hunger. It's voracious. I'll read any book you give me. I'll pray whatever prayer you want me to pray. I need to get to the bottom of this. I want to understand. Where are you if you had to chart yourself on this grid? I'm a big fan of telling the truth, uh, telling the truth about ourselves. I think one of the most destructive things for Christians is to try to pretend that we are more or other than what we really are. So one of the most, one of the most freeing, truth-telling things that you could do for yourself is just to name with sincerity where you actually are. And I don't think God is threatened by that. That's not going to pull your world apart. It might begin to pull it back together. So I don't believe that we can successfully coerce ourselves into spiritual hunger, the far right side of this, of this diagram here, not in a sustained way. I don't think that we're meant to just like look at other people feeling things and try to feel those things too in a genuine way. I think true spiritual hunger, the far right side of this grid, is a gift of grace. And really, with, with each step along the spectrum, I think there's an invitation to say yes or to say no. God ultimately honors your intentions. 
So I think for the person on the far left, the little nudges that a person in their heart, whether consciously or unconsciously, could express openness or a closed mind too. For all of us, this, this movement toward the right, toward passion and hunger for God, is itself a gift of grace. And if it's a gift, it means it's something that we can ask for. If it's not something we can manipulate or produce within ourselves, but must come from without, it's something we can look up and ask for. So no matter where you are, there's hope. Teresa of Avila said this. She said, I do not love you, Lord. I do not even want to love you, but I want to want to love you. That's a really great and honest prayer. Andy Gullihorn wrote a song based on this text in John. The song is called, I Want to Be Well. And the chorus is, I want to be well, I want to be well, or I want to want to be well. What's the honest prayer on your heart today? What's the honest ask of God or, or confession to God you have today? I believe in the core of my being that God honors your intentions both in the present and in the life to come. If you don't want anything to do with him, I think he's going to honor your intentions. So if Jesus is standing here today in your presence and he asks you the question, what do you want me to do for you? What's your answer to that question? Because he's not going to force it. In life, all of us are led by our wants, our cravings. We are guided in life by our hungers, the things that we hunger for the most. And the path of wisdom begins when we admit that our hungers, the things that we would just like, like candidly bend toward, are misguided. And the path of wisdom continues as we ask God to point us toward a wise and a worthy end. Corey Russell said, he prayed, God, would you constantly wound me with fresh hunger for you all the days of my life? It's a, it's a recognition that's not currently my prayer in my heart. Would you constantly wound me with fresh hunger for you all the days of my life? John G. Lake said, if there's one thing I could give all humankind, it would be the gift of spiritual hunger. The future belongs to the hungry. I want you to think about the corporations and the entities that are hungry for your time and your money and your attention. Apple is hungry. Amazon. Uh, Netflix is hungry for your eyes. Think about how they want you to binge watch. Hunger, binge watching. All of these are hungry for your time and your attention and your money so that they can keep, that you can keep them in the black and profitable. The future belongs to the hungry, and so we have to be mindful of the rival forces that are competing for our attention, that are competing to be our satisfaction. We have to fight to guard our hungers and to ask God to guide them toward the things of God, toward the kingdom of God. The verse for the year for us as a church is Colossians 1, 28 and 29. Paul says, He is the one we proclaim teaching and admonishing everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend. I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works within me. And I love those words, strenuously contend. When was the last time you strenuously contended for anything? Some of you would go back to high school sports think I'm going to make varsity or we're going like, to like take state. Some of you think, yeah, honestly, that's probably the last time I really worked my butt off to try to get anything. Some of us have just coasted. Maybe it was to make a grade. Maybe it was to get a bonus. 
When was the last time you strenuously contended for anything? What does it look like for us as a church to strenuously contend for a spirit that hungers and thirsts for righteousness? What does it look like for us recognizing the landscape of all the different entities and value systems and morality systems and philosophies that are competing for our attention? What does it look like for us together to strenuously contend for the kingdom of God? We said as we, as we share the 2020 vision at the end of November that one of the steps we're going to take this year is to expand our corporate prayer gatherings because we believe if we remain in Jesus and he in us, we're going to bear fruit. So we want to see fruit. We want to see breakthrough. We want to see people healed. We want to see marriages saved. We want to see the Jesus stuff happen in our city in our time. So we need to remain in him. We need to contend for that future. And so this week, we're kicking off. We're going to three corporate prayer gatherings a week. So Tuesday morning from 7 to 7.45. Uh, Thursday at lunch, 12 to 12.45, we're going to be in here. We're going to have people leading worship. We're going to have guided prayer, different themes for each week. This week, we're praying for a move of the Holy Spirit in our church. Future, we're going to pray for the lost. We're going to pray for the world. We're going to meditate on Scripture. We're going to have contemplative prayer. We want to strenuously contend for the future that God has for us. On Wednesday from 12 to 2, the building is just going to be open. We're going to have music on. You can come pray for five minutes, for two hours if you want to. It's a part of strenuously contending for this future, asking for the righteousness of God to come to bear on our world, making sinners right with him, and also establishing peace and justice and shalom on earth. Obviously, we're not going to get there politically. We're not going to get there through legislation alone. We need the people of God filled with the Spirit of God to do the work of God in a, in a place of unity, of one mind and one heart. I would rather our church be 50 people who are truly hungering and thirsting for righteousness, truly hungering and thirsty for the kingdom of God than 500 people who are willing to give God Sunday mornings but not another square inch of our time or our life or our loves. Jesus says, blessings on you who hunger and thirst for righteousness. There's a special and a particular dispensation of grace, of enabling power. Those words have performative power for those of you who are hungry, for those of you who are needy and know it, who are fed up with how things are and long for more of the kingdom of God to come to bear in our world. Blessings on you who hunger and thirst, and here's the promise, you will be filled. God is not a divine tease who puts desires in you that will forever go unsatisfied. God has not put that restlessness or that itch to live into our ideals, live into our potential, uh, not intending to someday satisfy it. When I was in high school, someone spoke a prophetic word over me with a group and said, the disturbance in your heart is from me. I'm using that to lead you closer to my truth. And I think that's a general truth about how God often leads his disciples, how Jesus leads his disciples, leads them with a restlessness or a discomfort. So there are people in here who are now giving church a second chance, but there was a time when you walked away because you were just so fed up with the hypocrisy, with the lack of living into our potential. Had you ever considered that that restlessness, that eagerness for something better was actually a divine gift and not just because you're a critical or a mean person? Might it be that the Holy Spirit is guiding you toward, toward our best future as a church, as the people of the kingdom of God? There's a restlessness in you to know more of the truth of God, to obey the truth of God in community, and you're unhappy because you've not yet seen it, and God's inviting you into something deeper. 
Restlessness and the disturbance of the heart, discomfort can be a divine gift, not just a divine tease. Something that God is using to, pr- to move you forward. It's an itch that he'll scratch, a need that he'll satisfy, either in this life or in the life to come. I wonder this morning if you couldn't take an honest assessment of your own hungers. An honest reading on what you really want in life, what really consumes you in life, and whether you might like take that want and formulate it into an expression of, of wants to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Maybe you're a person who's farther left on that spectrum, or maybe you're kind of hovering somewhere in the middle, dancing between indifference and openness and amusement. Maybe you've been further to the right in the past. You've been in seasons of true spiritual hunger and longing and seeking. You'd give anything to go back, but you've gotten busy. Life has gotten difficult. It does. We go through seasons in life. What do you want Jesus to do for you? Do you have the courage today to make a simple prayer like Teresa? Like, honestly, I don't love you, and I don't really want to, but I want to want to. I know that that's where I should be going. I don't really want to, like, give my sexuality over to you, or I don't really want to, like, let go of this sin that has been, like, my secret for a really, really long time, but I want to want to. I want to be free. If Jesus is standing in front of you this morning and says, what do you want me to do for you? What's your answer to that question? And I wonder if I couldn't challenge each of you, each of us today, to make this ask of God, God, would you give me the gift of spiritual hunger? As Corey Russell prayed, would you constantly wound me with fresh hunger for you all the days of my life? Would you cause other loves to be so dissatisfying in comparison? Would you cause me to be not at peace, unwell when I'm apart from your presence, when I'm deliberately stiff-arming you? God, would you give me the gift of spiritual hunger? One of the most beautiful things that Susie shared last week was that Jesus embodies each of the Beatitudes that he speaks to the other people. Jesus knew what it was like to be poor in spirit. Jesus knew what it was like to mourn. He knew what it was like to be meek. And Jesus also hungers and thirsts for righteousness, to see God's shalom be brought to bear on the earth. When he went into the temple and saw its corruption, he kicked over tables and stampeded cattle, and he fulfilled the prophecy, zeal for your house will consume me. Jesus hungers and thirsts to see God's righteousness, God's justice enacted on the earth. And in this season of history, God is inviting us to be co-workers in this work of justice and righteousness and shalom. But in the age to come, when Christ returns in final victory, he will make everything right. He will wipe away all the tears from our eyes. He will establish true justice and reign among us, and we will reign with him on the earth. So don't try to bite off more than you can chew. This is not all on your shoulders, but God is inviting us to be his co-workers. Would you ask him this morning to give you the gift of spiritual hunger that you might thirst, you might eagerly desire more of his presence, more of his work in your life, more of his spirit prompting you. And I'm going to tell you that this morning that prompting is going to feel very negligible probably for most of you. It's going gonna, it's gonna to feel like a little like, 
all right, I could try that. I could pray that. And God, God honors our yeses. And if you say yes to him this morning, I urge you to say yes to the next one. It might be different. It might be bigger. But his spirit is here. His spirit is at work. And when his word is preached, it never comes back void and empty. So we pray, Lord, we know that you're here. We know that your spirit is with us. Two or three are gathered in your name. We're going to break the bread and the juice. You're here. And so, Jesus, my ask right now is that we would be aware of your presence in our minds and our hearts. That in a reality that is deeper than what we can express, we would sense you wooing us toward the right. You would sense, uh, we would sense you inviting us into a life of pursuit of your presence. Pray, Lord Jesus, that you pour out your spirit and you would give us the gift of spiritual hunger for all who want it. That that hunger would snowball and grow. We would find ourselves restless and irritated with the status quo. For those who have only faith enough to say, I don't want to, but I want to want to. Lord Jesus, would you cause that tiny seed of faith to germinate and to grow and to begin to put down roots? Lord, I keep thinking of passage, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. If this is a reality we cannot coerce for ourselves, prove your word and stir up the Holy Spirit Cause us to be a community that hunger and thirsts for righteousness, that eagerly desires the presence of God, to be transformed into the image of Jesus Christ, to embody like Jesus the kingdom of God in the city of Tulsa. The other narratives feel like they're winning God. So we need you to bear your arm. Hear our prayers, Lord Jesus. Thank you that even now your spirit is interceding for us with groans deeper than words. Jesus, you intercede for us at the right hand of your Father. And so hold us now in the strength of your prayers. This is your church. Do whatever you want. So we pray in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.